Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... The art and science of how we find and lose our way with Michael Bond and his new book, Wayfinding. Michael Bond, who won the British Psychology Society Prize in 2015 for The Power of Others, is a freelance journalist and former senior editor and reporter at New Scientist. Michael's latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Wayfinding, the art and science of how we find and lose our way. Michael, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. So tell us first of all what the idea behind wayfinding is. So the book is basically about human navigation, how people find their way from A to B. But it's also about how we relate to the world around us and the importance of developing a a sense of place and how the brain enables us to do that. And it covers various different sciences, including neuroscience and what's going on in the, in the cells in the brain when we uh, find our way or remember uh, places that we've been to. And also some evolutionary biology looking at the ancient past of Homo sapiens and how wayfinding skills were crucial to our evolution and to our development. And then looking also at the effect of disease and illness on wayfinding skills and what happens when people develop Alzheimer's, which is um, essentially a, a disease of orientation, among other things. So, I mean, obviously, there's a, a lot of species of animals are able to find their way, some of them in lots of weird and wonderful ways. But we're talking about ourselves here, Homo sapiens. Let's go back to when we first started to find our way in any sort of intelligent way i guess who were the first wayfinders well if you can imagine how in, in the era where modern humans were evolving say 200,000 to 100,000 years ago homo sapiens would have lived in fairly tight-knit family units and those units would have been uh, quite isolated in the landscape simply because there weren't many of them around but they were also very highly socially connected the social networks of those early humans would have been pretty extensive and they would have uh, these family units would have traveled across the landscape uh, 100 miles 150 miles to visit their so-called neighbors in order to exchange resources or or trade 
or obtain food, all essential things to their survival. But in order to be able to do that, they would have had to have known how to find their way across uh, a fairly primitive and unfriendly uh, landscape. And they would have had to have been able to walk and remember where they were going, change direction, and retain a, a sense of where their, where their home was. They would have had to have been able to have had fairly extensive spatial memory of places along the route, because to be lost in that environment would have been almost certainly fatal with the various predators around. Being lost on your own in that environment would have been a very bad thing to do. So these skills would have been developed in that era. And so humans really were wayfinders even back in, in those early days. And those skills have been retained by us. Our brains are still capable of that kind of navigation, even though we're often not called not usually called upon to uh, to do it. And we're talking specifically about Homo sapiens here. So was this early form of wayfinding something that other species of human beings that have subsequently died out didn't necessarily do and something that gave Homo sapiens an advantage? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Neanderthals, for example, uh, along whom Homo sapiens lived in, in Europe for, for some time, they were also fairly sociable, and um, they moved around uh, the landscape, but nothing to the, like to the extent that Homo sapiens did. And um, that, in one theory, is that that is what gave those early Homo, Homo sapiens an, an edge over, um, if you like, competitor uh, human species. That ability to, to travel long distances gave them the advantage of retaining those large social networks which was a great survival asset in that environment. So how did, what, what sort of techniques would our early ancestors have used to navigate the landscape? And I ask this question because you know, we can see there are certain techniques that a lot of indigenous populations around the world may still use that have obviously been lost by like huge parts of, of humanity. Um, so what sort of techniques did they use? Well, I mean, an early uh, technique that a lot of uh, existing uh, indigenous communities have been found to use is simply when you start out from home, you step out for a certain distance uh, one way and come back and you repeat that until you know that route and you know your way home. And then you try another direction. And that way you build up a spatial memory of your home environment. And then you might try going a little bit further and remembering that route back. Uh, And so in that way, you build up a a memory piece piece by piece before you embark on uh, a more ambitious journey. But they may also have have used tools, basic technologies, such as uh, notching up marks in a a stick to to represent distance traveled, or or, or they may have counted their, their paces. They may have had some system for remembering features of the landscape along the way. So all these basic techniques, I mean, the essential thing about being able to navigate is being able to pay attention and having awareness of where you go in order to remember the way back. So anything that would have helped them do that would have been beneficial. And I wasn't aware until I read your book of the extent to which, um, in a lot of cultures, most cultures even, how the extent to which place naming is related to to wayfaring. Mm. Well, the great thing about place naming, naming a place you go to, is that, well, firstly, it can be very useful 
particularly if you use a description of the place in the name. So uh, just for example, there's a place where I've spent a lot of time with, with my family in, in Perthshire, in Scotland, which, and there's a, there's a hill there that, that everyone knows. Uh, the translation from the Gaelic is, is Rock of the Birds. And that hill has, as long as I've known it, and, and uh, from what I hear, generations past, has always been a nesting place for big raptors and corvids, and so birds that are very visible. So uh, a place like that, you would know when you got to it, Rock of the Birds, you, you, you knew when you, when you were there. The other advantage of place naming, uh, naming places, is that it helps you retain a memory of a place. It's much easier to, to remember somewhere you've been if you can associate it um, with a name. And this even works for, I was uh, recently talking to someone who works as, in search and rescue in a, as a cave diver. He, he, he basically rescues cavers who have got in trouble underground. And I was asking him about how he remembers extensive networks of tunnels in three dimensions. And he said one of the essential things is that they name places along the way, a turn in a tunnel or a particular color of rock. So it has many advantages being able to to name, remember place names. Let's talk about how we now, modern humans, how we develop wayfaring skills as children and actually how this in very recent history is actually changing. Mm. So children are natural explorers. And if, if, if you watch a, a child sort of venture out in their garden or, or somewhere they haven't been before, they have little fear of, of being lost. They will just follow their their instincts. And if you ask a child to uh, go to a, a particular destination, they will very quickly probably lose the idea of, of where they're meant to be going and quickly get caught up in interesting places that they find along the way. So they'll take a, take a little path that they didn't know was there, or they'll, they'll find something interesting to play with. And for them, it's all about, it's all about the journey. And, and this is really how humans how we develop a, a sense of our surroundings and a spatial awareness and also the confidence to move about in space and know that we can find our way and find our, find our way home. And, of course, today it's very difficult for children to do that because they usually are not allowed to roam by themselves very far. And so they don't get that, that spatial experience and are likely to grow up less confident uh, as wayfinders and and possibly less good at it. You talk in the book about research into, you know, studies that have been done into where in our brain our spatial awareness comes from, where our, our wayfinding comes from. What do we know? So this is a fascinating area of neuroscience at, at the moment, the uh, discovery of cells in the brain that tell us about the space around us and tell us about how we move through that space. A lot of the excitement is focused on an area of the brain called the, the hippocampus. In the hippocampus, there's a, a set of cells uh, known as place cells, which respond uh, specifically to places that we move through, and they retain a, a memory of places. So, I mean, just to give you an example of how place cells work in the hippocampus, if you were to enter a, a room you've never been in, you go in for the first time, as you step into the room, one of your place cells in the hippocampus is likely to, to fire up, to activate, perhaps when you're by the door. And if you move across the room, say to the window, then another place cell will, will fire when you're halfway there 
And when you get to the window, another place cell will fire. So as you move around that room and, and learn about that space, the place cells are firing up and together they represent a sort of, yeah, it's a representation of the space you're in. Because if you then go out of that room and then come back into it, say five minutes later, those place cells will fire up in exactly the same way they did the first time. So they retain a sort of map, a cognitive map as, it, as it's known, of the environment. And then as, as well as place cells, there are other cells in, in the hippocampus or the area around the hippocampus, which tell us about the distance we've traveled, the direction we're, we're facing. Um, there's another suite of cells that activate when we get to a, a border, a boundary in the environment, like a wall or uh, some change in texture in the floor. So all these various cells, and they're being, more are being discovered all the time. They give us a, a good sense of where we are. They enable us to remember places and also to navigate through them. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Michael Bond. We're talking about his new book, Wayfinding, the art and science of how we find and lose our way. And Michael, I want to concentrate for the beginning of the second part on, on I guess, the, the loose question of why some people are better at navigating than others. 
We mentioned that there are indigenous groups around the world that still retain ancestral wayfinding skills that, that have just never been lost. There are also some languages that have a spatial aspect to them. That's right. Essentially, those indigenous cultures where people seem to be extremely good, not just at navigating, but at knowing the direction that they're, that they're facing, for example, and have that great sense of, of how they relate to the environment. They're, they're generally cultures where that's, that's important. It's important to know uh, where you are. And it may be that this is still an essential survival skill. And so they have, they have to be aware and words that represent space and distance have become more part of their vocabulary. Because I think, I think all humans possess the fundamental ability to navigate. I mean, there, there are some exceptions, but a- across all, all races and cultures, this is something that our ancient ancestors developed and that modern humans generally retain. The reason why some people are better than others, it's a great question and, and a big mystery, but there are, I mean, there are some things we, we do know. I mean, one obvious one is we, we were talking about children before, but how you how and where you grew up and where you started to get a sense of yourself in space, that can have a profound effect on your navigation abilities uh, later on. So if you had a free-roaming childhood and were allowed to explore by yourself and you develop those skills, then you're more likely to have a better sense of direction later on. But also if you grew up in in the countryside, for example, then that has been shown to, to give you an advantage over growing up in a city. And one reason for that is that the countryside is, is let, there are fewer straight lines, there are fewer grids, it's harder to find a way from A to B, you can't just always follow a, a straight road. So you, you get used to having to adapt to that in a city often, especially a grid, a grid type city, you can learn a route left, right, left and straight on. And that, that doesn't tax your, your hippocampus as much. I mean, other factors that come into play are personality type, people who are extrovert and particularly open to experience and conscientious all seem to be better navigators. Uh, and, and in some ways, the reasons are quite, are quite obvious. Navigation requires attention to detail, so conscientiousness is going to give you that. And extroversion, you're more likely to be looking around at your environment. If you're neurotic and, and, and you're, you're going to be more focused on yourself, then you're less li- likely to be good. And the other controversial uh, factor in all this is gender and this big debate as to whether men and women are as good or men are better than women. Um, I don't know whether you want me to Well, I was going to ask you, there is this, everybody knows this cliche that men are better at navigating than women or women are useless at maps. And I was going to ask where that comes from, because, you know, no doubt there's subsequently been studies done into, into the differences in gender. But this is like a like a folk myth like an old wives tale people have always had this sort of idea where, where does it originally come from uh, that's a good question i don't know where it originally comes from i mean i think it's a i think it to some extent it's it, it's a myth although a lot of the the tests that uh, psychologists carried out on on men and women and their navigation skills do show that men have a slightly higher ability to find their way across a landscape that they're not familiar with. However, there are several reasons for this. And one point to make is that 
men and women tend to navigate in different ways. Um, so if you're a man, you're more likely, and this is a generalization, of course, there are great exceptions, but you're more likely to navigate using a sort of bird's eye view of the landscape and referring to distant distant reference points and landmarks. Uh, if you're a woman, you're more likely to see the landscape in relation to your own position in space and to pay attention to close landmarks, nearby landmarks along the route. Now, both those methods can be extremely effective. It's just that a lot of the tests that are carried out tend to favor the technique that men use. So it looks as if women are worse, when in fact, it could be a, just an effect of the, of the test. But if there, is an, if there is an actual effect, and women are worse than, than men, then it's, it's unlikely to be due to an innate uh, biology. This idea that when we were all hunter-gatherers, and men would travel long distances to hunt, and, and women would stay close to home and, and gather resources closer to home. And that's how those differences develop. There's not any great evidence for that, for the fact that women would not have needed to navigate as well as men. It's more likely to be an effect of modern culture. I mean, girls, when they grow up, before the age of seven or eight, are equally as good as boys at navigating and at other uh, spatial uh, cognitive tasks, um, mathematics and everything. But that changes soon after that. So by the time they get into secondary school, you see this effect. And there's likely to be uh, a bias there in the sort of experiences that girls get. So they're not, parents tend to deny girls access to spatial toys and to Lego and, and bricks and, and, and map reading, those kinds of activities. So they don't get, for, for some reason, parents think that girls are not going to be interested or not going to be as good. And so they don't get that experience. And it's not surprising that they grow up to be not as good because they simply haven't been able to exercise their brains in that way. So it's a sort of self-fulfilling bias. Um, in a way, it's down to it's a down down to sexism, you could say, in, in society that denies girls the opportunities that boys get to play with uh, spatial spatial tools and learn, and develop those skills. You mentioned earlier the connection of um, dementia and diseases like Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, to our ability to navigate. But even you talk about depression can have an effect on, on an individual's ability to, to navigate. So what's the connection of these diseases to the area of the brain that we use for our wayfinding? So Alzheimer's attacks that area of the brain where the spatial cells reside, uh, around the hippocampus. That's very vulnerable. And so it literally those those cells start to erode away and it becomes harder for sufferers to retain a cognitive map. In depression and other mental illnesses such as post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, the hippocampus is, is also affected and those cells are either not as active or there's too much, too much noise going on in the brain and it makes it harder for us to to use our cognitive maps in that way. But it's interesting that you mentioned depression. I mean, depression is on one level a disease of isolation and, and solitude. And the sort of language that uh, sufferers of depression use is very similar to the kind of language that people use when they're actually lost in, in physical space, this sort of you know, losing the path or gone astray. And so the metaphorically, the comparisons are, are similar, but also 
actually in the brain because that part of the brain allows us to navigate. The hippocampus is also essential for mental health and for memory, uh, imagination, and uh, decision-making and other things. So being a good navigator and exercising the, the hippocampus has advantages for other parts of our cognitive life. Well, that actually brings us neatly on to, I want to talk about next, what happens to us when we get lost. Um, because finding ourselves lost, especially in a, you know, a, a wilderness, a situation that could turn dangerous, is an, an incredibly debilitating thing to happen to our to our brains i want would you illustrate this with um in the book you illustrate this chapter with um the story of of a woman geraldine largay Mm -hmm. Um, can you tell us who she was and what happened to her jerry largay was um, a woman in her 60s who 2013 was walking the appalachian trail which is a a trail in in the, the eastern part of of the u.s that goes for some 2,000 miles up to the Canadian border. And uh, Jerry, it, when she got to, to Maine, um, so quite far north, she was doing very well at this stage. And she, she was a, a, a slow walker, but had had no trouble getting this far. One morning, she left the, uh, the trail, uh, which was at this point going through thick forest to relieve herself. And she walked perhaps no more than 80, 90 paces into the trees. And she couldn't find her way back. She forgot the direction that she'd walked in from. And she then spent the next few days wandering around, trying to send uh, cell phone messages and ring her, her husband and the search and rescue team. But her messages didn't get through. She ended up climbing up to some high ground and pitching her tent and she spent the next two or three weeks there. And tragically, she was never found and she died there. And so I spent uh, quite some time looking into this, into the story and following her, her route. And she, she was never found despite being searched for by hundreds of local volunteers, very experienced search and rescue team in that part, in that part of Maine. And she was extremely unlucky because she didn't really do anything wrong. She obeyed all the instructions stay put, to pitch a tent, to try and make yourself visible. But it's a tragic story because imagining what she would have felt like, I mean, being being lost, realizing you are lost is a terrifying experience. Anyone anyone who who has experienced it will they tend never to forget it. So she she would have would have been suffering emotionally. And of course, if you're terrified, uh, effectively, it, it's a panic attack you suffer when you get lost, then that it disables your rational decision making and it makes it very difficult to to make a good decision and uh so people often who are lost tend to get themselves e- even more lost but in this case jerry didn't really do anything wrong she was very unlucky and you went to the to the spot where she'd pitched our tent and then almost immediately almost got yourself lost as well <laughs> yes so i went into the into the forest with her with the GPS coordinates for where her last camp was. And I left the, the trail where, where she had left the trail just to get a, a sense of what that was, that landscape was like and what it would have been like for her. So I did, I found her, I found her, um, her, what was her tent? And um, there's a makeshift, um, there's a cross there and a grave. And I then put my rucksack down and took off my GPS and compass and everything and just, wandered around a bit and I suddenly realized that I I didn't know 
where my rucksack was, where the where the grave was, and and, and I was actually lost. And and having spent months researching this subject and knowing what happens in the brain when when this happens, and knowing how people should behave and what they shouldn't do, I all that went out out of the window. Uh, I panicked. Um, I it was incredibly. I was terrified, really, because I knew what had happened to Jerry, and I was fortunate. And I just stumbling around, I fell on my rucksack again. Uh, I was quite lucky, not through any navigation skill. So I did get a, I did um, inadvertently get a taste of of what uh, people feel like when when that happens. Just one more thing then from me. Can we talk about what effect the widespread use of GPS and, and sat nav is doing to our collective ability to navigate? Well, I don't want to get too romantic about this because GPS is obviously a, just an incredibly useful tool, and there are some people who are uh, terrible navigators who depend on it. But there's no, there's no question that using a, a GPS to tell you where to go, so following that set of instructions, it basically short circuits the, the hippocampus. Those spatial cells are inactive. I mean, this has been shown in experiments. Um, there's nothing going on. So if you rely on that technology, you're going to, your navigation skills are likely to get worse. The unknown question, of course, is, well, the hippocampus is crucial for, as we were saying, a whole, whole load of important cognitive functions. And the less you use it, uh, then, you know, that's potentially potentially uh, dangerous. I say dangerous, I've used that word carefully, but there's a lot of work being done on just finding out how, how dangerous that is. But I think perhaps... All that aside, the other thing to consider is that when you use a GPS, you, you lose contact with your surroundings. You, you, you don't get a sense of place. You don't have that connection with the world around you. And just from an aesthetic uh, point of view, that's, that's something to consider. For some people, that, that's, not a, that's not an issue. But um, I think it's just worth knowing what you're losing when you rely on that, on that technology. So I've been talking to Michael Bond. We've been talking about his book, Wayfinding, The Art and Science of How We Find and Lose Our Way, which is out now in the UK from Picador. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you very much, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.